And Father, we're grateful for the beautiful day that we've enjoyed. We thank you for the wonder of the world that we live in and the many extraordinary features that capture our imagination and attention and curiosity. And we thank you now at the end of the day we can continue our study on this important subject and we pray that you'd grant us grace to have a desire to know and knowing to be able to live in love for you and for one another and to be um, those who would be used of you in this world for the good of others. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, hold on. Let me make sure I've got the volume right. We're taking up um, a new section tonight, what I'm calling part four of the paper. Um, before we do so, though, let me ask about last week. We were finishing up on confessional foundations regarding the nature of temptation, sin, and repentance. And uh, the finishing portion of that had to do with applications. Uh, we looked at, the, again, the uh, dispute between Rome and the Reformers on the importance of concupiscence. And then we applied all of that understanding to same-sex attraction, uh, looking at the fact that um, the dynamic or the working of concupiscence in the Reformed view is the same with respect to all sin. We all suffer under that dynamic. Um, and furthermore, that all believers, no matter what sins they struggle with, have a continued corruption uh, throughout their life as believers. It's never eliminated. Um, but there's the possibility of real change in the process of sanctification. And uh, there is the right to celebrate sincere efforts. And in fact, we noted that uh, there's a profound moral difference between our sin in our corruption and actual transgressions. And there can be much comfort taken in the fact that though one may struggle with some form of sin and concupiscence, um, that uh, the possibility of actual transgressions being more and more put to death is a great encouragement to the believer. So um, any questions about any of that this week that uh, have come to you since we last talked? Or are you content with our progress thus far. All right. Then uh, this new section, it's entitled Biblical Perspectives for Pastoral Care. And there are three uh, subdivisions for this section. They want to look at pastoral care and discipleship, pastoral care and the question of identity, and pastoral care and uh, uh, the terminology that should be used with respect to same-sex attraction. These were all part of assignments given to the committee uh, from the General Assembly. Um, so we take up the idea of discipleship, and um, the first thing the committee wants to insist upon is uh, this, that um, there's a foundational sense of pastoral care for believers, uh, that um, 
is at its essential level the same for everyone. That every believer who's struggling in the battle for sin, there's a fundamentally the same approach uh, to pastoral care. And they argue this is true then uh, for those struggling with same-sex attraction and those struggling with any other uh, uh, form of sin. Um, the, um, and they have a fine summary in this opening paragraph of all the things we have in common. We're made in the image of God and called to love and worship him. Uh, we, we're people who have come to repentance and believe in Jesus. Uh, we're people then who are called to put to death sins and to pursue a life of uprightness. Um, in light of who we are in Christ. Um, so all of that's very important uh, to grasp and to hold on to throughout this whole discussion. Um, we are one in that, not only one in Christ, but one in the pastoral um, uh, structure that Christ has appointed for us in this world. They say, nevertheless, because of the particular circumstances of our culture, um, the pastoral care for same-sex attracted people requires special consideration. Uh, things have shifted so in our culture uh, with respect to understanding this that it means that the church has to be attentive carefully to think through uh, in what ways the believer who struggles with same-sex attraction uh, should be cared for pastorally by the church. And so for the rest of this section, uh, what the committee wants to do is to look into um, what it, are appropriate forms of pastoral care uh, that are peculiar to the struggle with same-sex attraction. Uh, they're going to summarize briefly and then hope that um, further guidance would be available for anybody who wants to go further in the bibliography that they've attached to the end of the report. Um, the, um, the, and so the first thing they want to say is this, that how the church communicates to same-sex attracted uh, folk, believers, um, is absolutely critical. Um, and in particular, to hold out the idea that faithfulness um, to God's call, to Jesus' call, um, follow me, be my disciple, that faithfulness in their lives is possible. And for a host of reasons, um, a same-sex attracted Christian might have come to a different conclusion, uh, that it's impossible to be a disciple. And the church needs to be very, very plain on that. There's no sinner that can't become a, a disciple of Jesus upon repentance and pursuing the things that are laid out for uh, all of those who would be united to Christ. Um, the um, So, um, there are reasons why, and we can't get into them all, why same-sex attracted folk might have supposed that pursuing holiness is an exercise in futility. Um, but um, they want to hold out the idea that, in fact, every Christian has been equipped by God through 
the justifying grace of Christ, the new birth, um, uh, the uh, power of the Spirit at work within. Uh, every Christian has been equipped for real progress um, in faithfulness and discipleship that will honor God uh, and that's worthy of uh, rejoicing in. And here they cite um, the language of the um, uh, Confession of Faith. I'm going to put that in the chat so you can see it. They didn't um, uh, print it out, but it's very important from chapter 16 and section 6. It's in the chat now. You should be able to see it. Um, Notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ their good works are also accepted in him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and to reward that which is sincere, though accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. Uh, that confessional statement is uh, sound scripturally, and it's a statement that is true for every believer, no matter what kinds of sins uh, they're struggling with. Uh, and that remains true, the committee insists, even if they struggle their whole life uh, with uh, that concupiscence of same-sex attraction. So let me pause there. That's the first point about holding out the hope of real discipleship fruitful discipleship uh, to uh, same-sex attracted Christians. And you probably understand clearly, we don't need to go into detail, but if you want to bring the matter up further, why? Because of the way the church has sometimes uh, spoken about same-sex attraction or acted towards such people that they might have thought that it was an impossibility. Any questions, comments on um, on that uh, particular point. Right. Dave, I have a question. Yeah. Um, so when you were introducing tonight and you were talking about that um, every Christian has struggles with sin in different areas. Yes. Um, and so if we take it out of the realm of what this report is talking about mainly, um, to, let's say, um, uh, alcoholism or gambling or something. And I think when folks go through a 12-step program, they tell them, the counselors tell them that they will always be an alcoholic. They're just a recovering alcoholic, right? Um, is, is that similar to what you're saying or this report is saying that... Um, no, person... no I, I don't think so. Um, okay, can you make it distinguish between the two? I, I don't want to really, I don't really want to talk about the Alcoholics Anonymous program, well, but what any, I want to say, any... well, hold on, okay, hold on. Okay. So I don't want to get into that and w what they're thinking or why. But I want to say that this report is saying that, and you're jumping the gun just a little bit, but we, oh, can, okay. we, can, we can jump the gun a little bit. The report is saying that, yes, it's possible. 
that God in his sanctification would free you entirely from uh, some form of sinful attraction that you have. It's also possible that he wouldn't and that you'd live your whole life just seeing it, it in actuality be more and more put to death. Um, so it, it isn't adopting whatever scheme is behind the alcohol and Alcoholics Anonymous understanding. Does that? Yeah, I think I was thinking more that um, if you had a gambling addiction, as they call it, that you may might your entire life have a um, an urge, a desire to gamble, but you've gotten it under control because you have gone to Christ and repented of it, um, and you have some success with that right right and the alcoholic in the same way that's where i was thinking i I did i didn't know if the language that we use these days is helpful or hurtful but it seems like it's similar to what you're how they're describing um no, it's not because same sex attraction. No, it's not because the um, AA, for whatever reason, is saying to that person, "You have to think of yourself as an alcoholic the rest of your life." Oh, and I the, see. And the okay, report is the, the report is not buying that, but it's also recognizing that you may have to fight with something the rest of your life. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks, Ken. Any other um, thoughts or concerns on that? All right, then let's go on to page 25. Um, Now we take up the topic of sanctification, and they want to have us understand sanctification from the framework of what they call the already-not-yet tension. And this is a framework... um, that belongs to uh, the insights of what's called biblical theology. And um, it it means that there's a sense in which the kingdom has already broken into the world. It is the real kingdom. Uh, It's not going to be some other kingdom, but it hasn't completely broken into the world. And the, the, the final consummation of that breaking in has not taken place. So that we live, sometimes they say, between the times. When Christ comes and he dies and he's raised, that's the um, uh, the breaking in of his kingdom with the king. The king is reigning over this age now in anticipation of the consummation when he comes again. And so there are kingdom realities present with us, but they're not completely present with us. So there's a sense in which every part of our Christian life is marked by something that's already begun, but is not yet completed. And if we don't get that dynamic, we're not going to get what the Bible's teaching us about life in this age. So this is a very important uh, point. Um, The... um, So, they begin by observing, no Christian can remain unchanged. What it means to be a Christian is to be in process of becoming 
more and more like Christ. Uh, wonder, what a wonderful um, calling that is, a thought that that's what life is about for us, uh, to become uh, little bits at a time more and more like Jesus. But they ask, what does that look like with respect to those who experience same-sex attraction? Um, And they note that there's a good bit of conversation about this and that there's a lot of debate and uh, there doesn't seem to be uh, anywhere near a consensus at this point. But their burden is to say there are two common errors as to what it looks like. And they want to address those two errors head on. Um, And the first one uh, reflects what they call an over-realized eschatology. And the second one reflects what they call an under-realized eschatology. Now, um, remember, eschatology just doesn't have to do with um, the very last things that are going to happen in in terms of redemptive history. But eschatology has to do with the goal of things, the purpose toward which things is moving, and part of which purpose is being realized now, and part of which remains to be realized at the consummation of all things. So, um, with that understanding of eschatology, then the first error, they say, is that some Christian approaches, and this has to do with churches and ministries and and particular teachers, some say that same-sex desire, um, the uh, has to be... Uh, utterly eliminated um, if there is to be sanctification. Uh, Or if not, or a counterpart to that, the same sex attraction has to be um, turned into heterosexual desire if there's to be any sanctification. That that those are the baselines. Elimination of homosexual temptation or the development of heterosexual desire. Uh, And if you just found the right techniques or had enough faith and so on, uh, you would be delivered in some uh, uh, um, final way from this problem. And the phrase they want to use to this, it reflects an over-realized eschatology. What do we mean? There's... There are purposes that are going to be fulfilled. They're partly being fulfilled now. That is, then, that's the word realized. They're being realized in part now. But an over-realized eschatology means that you're thinking that too much that belongs to the end is going to happen right now. Does that phrase make sense to you in in that way? So in this case... We are all going to be finally freed from sin at the end. But they're saying to insist that with respect to any sin, you insist that there can't be sanctification without being entirely freed from it in this age, is to have an over-realized eschatology. 
Um, and it's against uh, this point of view that they cite, again, Westminster Confession of Faith 6.5. I'm going to put that in the chat for you as well, because it is such an important point, uh, and I want to read it again for you. Here's what we confess together about Scripture. This corruption of nature that they've been talking about, this concupiscence, this corruption of nature during, during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. Um, that's not the goal of sanctification in this life, that you be utterly freed uh, from sin. The task for believers is not perfection, it's not complete vindication, but rather it's the path of faithfulness and uh, a loving obedience. That's our pilgrimage. And we will see progressive advances, but on the other hand, attended by fits and starts and going backward at times. And so it does harm to anyone, but certainly it does harm to same-sex attracted Christians to say that the elimination of homosexual temptation or the development of heterosexual desire is what it means for you to be sanctified in this age if you want to be a disciple uh, who struggles with same-sex attraction. So that's the first error. And do you see why that would be uh, a really colossal error? Um, because it would be so crushing. Uh, it would be crushing to every Christian to have that said to them. Uh, and, and But it, of course it would be particularly crushing to same-sex attracted people. So, Dave, I have a question about that. Yes. Um, so, as, as, as you pointed out, I mean, in a sense, this applies not just to homosexual desire, but to any desire. But it seems, for some reason, that, you know, the people that do this tend to focus on the homosexual. You know, you know, you don't hear them doing, saying the same thing like, like, well... You know, if you struggle with anger, you can't be sanctified because you get, you know, angry at people. Right. You know, they seem to apply it very much, very narrowly towards one area out of proportion to every other part of our, our, our lives. Any idea why that is? Um, it's partly because um, the... Uh, um, This is just me here. Um, my thinking on this is that um, most of the sins uh, that we um, struggle with are uh, disorders that um, are, are simply... Uh, um, violations of the moral law itself. Um, but homosexual, uh, same-sex attraction 
has the additional complexity of uh, being against the very nature of uh, the sexual relationship. And um, uh, that's why there's a, a heightened sense of the grievousness of it uh, in the scripture. Um, the, uh, and I, I think that is what has led people to have then this extravagant um, sense that you've just got to be rid of something that bad if you're going to be sanctified at all. It's because of the kind of double, not simply being a violation of the moral law with respect to our human nature, but it is a violation of the moral law and a violation of our own God-created sexuality. Does that? Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, I, to, you know, the way I have thought about this in the past is there all there's almost, and I've admitted this to people in the past, there's almost a visceral reaction against homosexuality because it seems so. Uh, I don't know what the right word is, but it's so different. And yes. So, and it strikes at your very nature of who you are. Yes. And and, and I'll admit that that's something I've struggled with, and I've got to get past that to deal with right. somebody who potentially is my brother or sister in Christ. Right, absolutely. It's a great point, Steve. It's a great point. Other thoughts or questions on this point? All right, Um, so uh, what we've said then, and this is a wonderful point, our calling is to pursue faithfulness and loving obedience to our Savior, and our advance in that belongs to him. It's his grace at work, it's his purpose being unfolded, and we just rest in Christ and we do our part. now that's true for same-sex attracted people. It's true for all of us. The second error, so we've got the first, the over-realized eschatology. That is the insistence that there had to be, you had to be perfectly freed of the sin uh, or perfectly renewed in the right orientation if you were to be sanctified. Uh, the second is um, what they're wanting to say, an under-realized uh, eschatology, and that is um, that if you're same-sex attracted, that is something that is absolutely fixed reality for you. Uh, there's that there's no sense in which um, meaningful change can take place over time, and they call this an under-realized eschatology because uh, this view says. If there's going to be ever ch- any change anytime, it's only when the eschaton comes, when the perfection and consummation is worked out, and that it can't happen at all in this life. Now, f- for uh, unbelieving homosexual people, that's they insist on it because they insist on that as part of who they are, a, a, a fixed part of their nature. Um, but others abandoning um, uh, the promise that's in Christ, uh, 
even if for theological reasons, suppose that um, this can't come to pass. Um, that, uh, in, in fact, same-sex attracted people can't make any progress whatsoever. Um, but the biblical perspective, the committee insists, is that the Holy Spirit uses repentance. I love this uh, sentence. The Holy Spirit uses repentance with the ordinary means of, it, of grace to advance Christian understanding, godly desires, and biblical obedience. Uh, there have been all kinds of extravagant uh, therapies that have done harm to people that they thought were justified uh, because it was so necessary to um, uh, get rid of, in any sense, of homosexual attraction. Um, here are committees insisting that no, the same thing that's going to sanctify you and me and anybody else is the Holy Spirit's work through the ordinary means of grace um, that we'll come to find that we grow in godliness. Um, the And that every believer who struggles with habitual sexual sin should expect to see that kind of uh, meaningful um, change. Um, and at the end of this paragraph, um, they... Uh, make a lovely um, um, allusion to a, a great work. Let me, this is at, um, well, about the, near the bottom of page 25. Uh, the sentence um, that begins, if believers are routinely tempted. If believers are routinely routinely tempted along similar lines over the course of life, they should expect that the less they give in to that temptation and establish deep habits of holiness, over time the pull of their hearts toward that sin should lessen or even be drowned out by, and here's the phrase, the expulsive power of a greater affection for Christ. The footnote here directs your attention to a Scottish theologian called Thomas Chalmers. Uh, I wanted to say a word or two about him if you're not familiar with him. He was born in 1780 and uh, died in 1847. So he spanned the 18th into the 19th century. He was a Scottish preacher, theologian, and author. He served as a professor of theology both at the University of St. Andrews and the University of Edinburgh. And he was a leader in both the Church of Scotland and the Free Church of Scotland. Uh, has been called Scotland's greatest 19th century churchman. He was a, a remarkable man, excelled in many different fields. Um, the uh, Covenant College's Chalmers Institute, which studies economic systems and poverty uh, to try and bring Christian wisdom to bear on uh, the formation of society economically. It's named for Chalmers because he had such a great interest in that and wrote so thoughtfully uh, about how societies could be better ordered, ordered for the common good. So a remarkable man. And 
he, um, we're not entirely sure whether this is a sermon. It doesn't seem like a sermon. It's probably more likely a lecture. Uh, comes to be entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And um, you can, um, this has been published by um, Crossway, and I've uh, put in the um, uh, chat a link to Amazon where you can get it. It's a little paperback, but if you're interested in reading the whole thing, but let me give you some idea of the significance of this phrase. Um, Chalmers begins his lecture reflecting on the calling of 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh, Chalmers was a moral philosophy philosopher, which meant... He thought deeply about the nature of human beings and the way they work so that he could understand how Scripture might apply to them and give guidance as to how to live out our calling in Scripture. And so he set before his audience this question, having laid that text out, don't love the things of the world. Um, He said, how can the human heart be freed from the love of the world? And he argues this, that in the nature of the case, what one loves and seeks after, one prefers above all other things. That's just the way we are. And he says, there are only two ways to remove this controlling affection or preference of the heart. The one is to try and uh, destroy it. Uh, For example, in this case, to show that the world is not worthy of our affection and that the world isn't going to last and the things of this world aren't going to last. Um, And to try and tear down the desire and it's so that it's effectively a kind of emptying, just trying to rid the self of that desire. And Chalmers says that uh, that is the least likely uh, to be effective, this emptying. The other way, he says, is to show that there's something vastly more worthy uh Uh, of the heart's attachment. In this case, God, God everlasting, full of love and kindness and fatherly care to direct the heart's attention to this infinitely more valuable thing and thus awaken a new and stronger affection that drives out, expels the former attachment, the former affection to the world. This, he says, is the effective way uh, for people to grow and comply with the calling of 1 John 2.15. And he says, God has provided everything for us to this end. Um, That uh, the uh, 
that this other way of, of simply trying to empty the self by uh, putting to death the old desire is ineffectual and it can, will never rescue us. Um, but on the other hand, the um, what God in the gospel teaches us is that we are given a new nature that can be awakened to a new love and that the object of that love is so beautiful and powerful that it will grow up and finally drive out all ignoble loves and order the other loves that are lesser rightly in relationship to the ultimate love. Uh, And and thus, uh, if you think of... um, the promise that uh, when Christ comes, we shall like be like him because we'll see him as he is. Um, that conjoins so nicely with, with Chalmers' argument. In other words, we'll see the object of our love perfectly and that will finally drive out every vestige of alien love from the heart, because it will be so powerful there will be no room for such ignoble and lesser things. So it's a very powerful piece. Uh, Now Chalmers is a high Victorian. Uh, His prose can be a little um, floral. Uh, Some of it is soaring and wonderful, but but let me, I wanted you at least give, give you some sense of what the committee has in mind when it makes reference to that um, uh, expulsive power of a greater um, affection. And what, what they want to conclude from that then is that it's um, critically important. Can you all steer, still hear me? Yes, oh, I can. Yeah. Okay, I yeah. can hear you. Uh, for some reason, I got to notice that I'd been kicked off the account, but uh, <laughs> I guess it wasn't true. Um, that's what they have in mind that leads them to say that it's critically important that leaders in our churches communicate clearly about this already not yet tension in the experience of sanctification. We can't overpromise or tie God's character to promises that he's never given. And on the other hand, we ought not to treat same sexual desire as a uh, immutable reality against which uh, the warfare uh, of the Christian life can make no progress whatsoever. Um, the, um, and they conclude on the page 26, simply put, the telos, that is to say the end of the purpose, uh, the end of purpose of sanctification is Christ-likeness, not heterosexuality. And then the verse I was just alluding to uh, brings them to their conclusion, 1 John 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, there's the already, and what we will be has not yet appeared. There's the not yet. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So what happens now? Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's the process. Uh, And that's a a beautiful conclusion. 
and powerfully put, and I think uh, worthy of our deepest reflections and uh, further consideration. So let's have some conversation about all of that and um, start with Austin. The Chalmers quote sounded kind of like something Edwards would say. Is there something he wrote similar to that? Yes, Edwards' work on religious affections is very much of that character. Um, it's not so concise in this piece, although <laughs> the piece isn't all that concise. It's very florid and full of words. And But yeah, the ideas are clearly Edwardsian, and uh, Chalmers uh, was a, 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 a very able reader of Edwards. Were they, did they know each other? Or? No, Edwards died in 1758. Um, so uh, the, the, they would have never had that opportunity. But um, on the other hand, Edwards was very, very highly regarded in Scotland. So um, Chalmers would have been bo- born into a culture where, um, in fact, Orthodox Calvinists in Scotland uh, held Edwards in higher esteem than he was held in in America. Um, Edwards was so popular in America that when his congregation was kicking him out, uh, the Scottish were raising funds to have a portrait painted of him uh, (laughs) that would commemorate his ministry. Can you imagine having people wanting your picture in some grand and glorious portrait? The, The painting ends up being, I don't know, it's maybe five and a half feet tall and four feet wide. It hangs in, uh, it hangs in uh, Nassau Hall in Princeton uh, um, University today. But uh, Chalmers would have come into the world, a, a, a culture that was very much uh, uh, Edwardsian in a sense. It's a good point, Austin. Other uh, questions? Um, about anything that we've been saying here tonight? Well, we press on then to uh, biblical perspectives for pastoral care next week. Uh, to the idea of identity, um, this is uh, a pretty hotly disputed part of uh, this whole subject, as we've already seen. Um, so we'll spend some time on that next week. Um, if any, if any of you do get a chance to uh, read Chalmers, if you're interested, in it, let me know. I'd be interested to know what you think of it. Um, I'm sort of used to reading 18th and 19th century English prose. Um, And uh, I I wonder how far out of touch that is with where we are today. I'm not sure I'm a good judge of that anymore. Um, But, well, we can end a little early tonight if uh, there's no other questions or comments or uh, concerns that Um, you have. I had a few thoughts um, since we're ahead of time. Um, on Chalmers' um, statement, um, knowing that he was Scottish and Reformed, um, I know 
he didn't mean this, but it sounded a little bit like someone could take that as I, um, I'm not going to get rid of my sin by just focusing on getting rid of it, but I should, it should be in the direction of gaining something, which is our love for Christ. And therefore it would be best for me to go into a monastery. (laughs) Um, because no, no, that, that wouldn't follow in his thought at all because the, um, uh, for Chalmers, it's precisely living in this world um, that uh, our hearts get attracted to things that, in this world, either things they shouldn't be attracted to at all, or without proportion, they, they get um, too much love for one thing and not enough love for another. And the... Um, the moralist often then wanted to say, what you need to be is a rigorist. You need, in, in fact, it'd be just the other way around that the moralist he's fighting against might, might be into the idea. Just, okay, go to a monastery then where you can just empty yourself of any desires mm-hmm. for goods or disordered goods. Um, and... Uh, by just emptying yourself, you can become holy. And Chalmers saying, there's no way that's going to happen. And the way God has designed it is that the sinful desires are expelled by the beauty and power of the wholesome desires. Right. And the disordered desires are brought into proper order again by the power of that ultimate end and goal yeah. yes I, I wanted you to talk about the difference between ah. those two um, so thank you yes. um, uh, then just um, one thought I had along those lines is that um, we uh, we can be very attracted to the beauty of the world around us or nature mm-hmm. and um, I think where we get distracted is that that beauty is just for us and um, we revel in it without um, acknowledging who made it. Yes, uh-huh, absolutely. And once we are able to begin to direct our thoughts that way, nature becomes more of a wonder. Yes, Yeah. And the fact that he even blesses us that way. Yeah, when yeah. we don't deserve it. And it becomes a pathway then to the Lord rather than yes. a distraction from the Lord. Right. And, yeah. Yeah, great point, Jen. Uh, Chambers. Dave, just each time, each lesson we're going through, I'm just really grateful to you for helping us go through this because reading it, I don't understand it as well. And so just having you present it and having the discussion, the questions that come up, I just am really, really grateful for the blessing of you teaching. And I'm as I've been reading it, I thought I need to remember 
to pray for these men who have written this. Oh yes. And, and thank the Lord for them. It's just uh, um, I'm and that it's something that Austin said was really good because there are parts that I just a phrase that I love of yours. It's a Charlie horse between my ears. <laughs> <laughs> it fits really well for me a lot. So, but so it's really good to go through it because I it is helping me to understand it little by little more. And then what Steve Edwards said too, having it be a, a motivation to seek the Lord on how I'm looking at these things. Yes. And, and change that. So thank you, yeah. all of you. Wonderful, Bonnie. Yeah, we should pray for the committee and, and pray especially the end of June into the first part of July. The assembly is going to meet in St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, the uh, paper will be considered um, and there'll be discussion. And we just pray that it would be something that will draw the whole church together and fit us to be better in ministering to folk uh, and not an occasion for bitterness and dissension. Um, so that, that would be worthwhile to have a regular part of prayer as we head into the assembly. Right now, it's the largest, I think it's the largest registration the assembly has ever had, which is just shocking given the fact that we've just started to come through the end of a pandemic. Um, hey, Dave. Yes, Chris. Is the over-realized eschatology, is that descriptive of what has been called and is known as reparative therapy? Is that what you would, is that one in the same? The idea that you can change your orientation fully and completely, or am I, I overstating? I, I think that the committee would say yes. I know from my own point of view, there it's a wide variety of reparative uh, okay. theologies, and um, I wouldn't think it would be fair to throw them all into one bin. Right. Um, some of them, for example, used exorcism. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that that is wicked. Um, the uh, but I do think there are because homosexuality is we haven't talked about it because it wasn't really on the um, docket of the committee, but homosexuality is a very diverse uh, phenomena. Um, there are at least many, many proximate causes. Um, and yeah. so um, there are, uh, but in, in any case, the fundamental premise of most reparative theology, I think that would be f fair enough, uh, or, or most uh, technologies or therapies and so on, um, is the idea that um, this overrealized uh, eschatology, that what being a Christian means is to finally be freed of homosexual attraction and have to be uh, replaced with heterosexual attraction. And I think that the committee very soundly is saying uh, is just not where we are properly with respect to any sin. Right, and that and that is what I thought reparative therapy's goal was on line 14 of 
page 25, that God would find, would deliver them in some final and complete way, changing yes. their orientation. That's how I've heard it described over the years. Yes. And that's how I've heard it criticized and yeah. ultimately really dismissed as a, a failure, both from without the church broadly, but also within the church. Well, these people didn't completely change or they... Right. There's a couple, as you know, as you probably remember, some real high-profile people who said, oh, yeah, I've changed, and then were caught in bars and photographed and, you know. Right. Oh, that you've, you've fallen, you know, which is, um, so they failed. So the goal, or the goal was not met, even though they said it had been met. And I just thought that that was their implied way of getting at that. Um, oh, it is, I think so. Yeah, and I, and I guess I just wanted to ask, though, I think observationally, that kind of reparative therapy, it hasn't worked, it hasn't quote unquote worked when you look at the numbers. But the only thing that holds me back from completely dismissing it is it does seem like it might have worked in some very limited cases. Like you wouldn't say God is beyond doing that, right? You just would say that it's not normative or you shouldn't expect that or you shouldn't really set that as the goal. For someone struggling with this, yes, that's it's that's more right. about the journey, not about ultimately yes. where you get yeah. in this life. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I think that's right. They want to insist on both those points. You can't say you're not being sanctified if you're not freed from it, and on the other hand, you can't say you'll never be freed from it. You have to just grit your teeth and, and realize that this is a fixed point. Uh, in your uh, this worldly experience, and they're also denying that profoundly. And you see, there are it's we're in such a complicated situation. There are all kinds of uh, Christians who are prepared to say it's a fixed point, uh, if for no other reason they feel like that's true empirically. But there are other activists who want to say it's a fixed point. Therefore, to say it must be accepted. It's the way God created. So there are good reasons and bad reasons, perhaps, for similar things being said in each circumstance. Yeah. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. Great, Chris. Good point to raise. Um, I forgot to ask this in the beginning, but um, if Rome is in error on concupiscence, how come is we seem to in American culture at least we see a lot of Roman Catholics that are strong voices on the issue of gender and homosexuality? So do they have other theology going for them that allows them to be, I guess, allies on this issue? Well, um, conservative Roman Catholics hold to the same uh, sexual morality that conservative Protestants hold to. Um, uh, Rome in general um, of course uh, you know doesn't do so well with respect to homosexuality. Uh, The um, scandals of parishes all over the world that are going broke because they're being sued for uh, homosexual assaults on children is just um, beyond imagination. Now the so I don't maybe you're t- talking about people um, 
like conservative Roman Catholics like George Weigel or mm-hmm. uh, Bob, George. yeah, Robbie George or Bob Royal or um, the guy who's now head of AEI, uh, Anderson. Um, but they're they're actually somewhat of a rare breed. Um, but we certainly could make common cause with folks like that. Uh, they're brilliant. They're articulate. Um, and so you, you don't think that they're normal, I guess, for their communion? Uh, no, I wouldn't say they are. Uh, okay. Now, I think George likes to think of himself as that, but I, I, I think that may be an over-realized eschatology on George's part. Uh, uh, I, I've known George Weigel for years. I think the world of him. Um, but... Uh, uh, he has a vision of Roman Catholicism uh, that is um, doesn't map real well with the reality of contemporary Roman Catholicism. Um, yeah, you make a good point about the priest scandal. I guess that's more common, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Other anybody else a thought or a Good discussion. I'm glad you all spoke up. Anybody want to get word in edgewise before we draw to a close? All right, let me pray for us. Our Father, uh, we're so grateful for the committee's work, and we do pray that uh, the men and women who were involved uh, in the discussions um, would feel a sense of gratitude to you and a sense of um, satisfaction in the way in which they've ministered to us in the church. And we pray, Father, uh, as we have contemplated the upcoming assembly, that this document would be used of you for great good in the PCA and beyond the walls of the PCA. And... Father, we look forward to continuing our study and the further light that uh, can shine on our own experience. And we pray that we would better be enabled to be witnesses to these truths in our own little communities, the little uh, communities that we're a part of at work or at school or in our uh, in our home communities. Um, that. The, the national turmoil over these issues is not going to solve anything, but more likely in small places, in small ways, uh, among folk who know each other and can encourage each other, there can be uh, real understanding. And we pray that you'd help us to be part of that effort. And we ask it all for Christ's glory and for the upbuilding of his church. Amen.